Hey, how's it going, everybody? Good evening, Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. What better way to start off a philosophical conversation of the gods with some uh, Inuit throat singing? All right. How's everyone doing this evening? How's everyone doing tonight? Very nice to drop by this. You know, I don't often say this, but I'm going to say it tonight. Tonight is going to be something else. Tonight, it's going to be like seeing the police in 1979 at Massey Hall in Toronto or the Elma Combo. This is going to be something tonight. And I'm glad that you're here for it. I'm glad that you can say to your great-grandchildren that you were here for the show that taught you everything there is to know about evil, which there is quite a bit to, uh, to know about. So... I'm just going to uh, quickly drop the stream into, uh, well, various places around the web. And, uh, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll get started. So just while we are awaiting, while we are awaiting, I am well, thank you. Hello, Akeem. Hello, Book of Eli. Hello, Cladden. Hello, Milshawn. Hello, hello, hello. Good afternoon, Julie. Nice to see you again. Julia. <laughs> when the leaves turn from green to gray. Oh, hey, hey, Julia. You act so peculiar. I'd really like to handle what's between your ears. <laughs> Do you have any insights into why some kids become picky eaters, i.e. only into beige foods? Yes. So people, uh, kids become picky eaters because they feel over-controlled in their environment, and so they wish to control back. And as you're, if you're a kid, if you can't control your environment, if you feel bullied at school, if you feel ignored at home, kids become picky eaters because they wish to explain to the world in the unspoken language of the unconscious how they feel. And so if a kid is experiencing an emotion that the parents or the society is not willing to listen to, that kid will attempt to recreate that emotion in others as a way of attempting to gain empathy. So if a kid is bullied, the kid will bully others so that the kid's bullying can be uh, examined or explored. If the child is feeling over-controlled, is feeling frustrated and helpless, then he's going to try and recreate that feeling in his parents, right? So then the parents are like, oh, I'm so frustrated, I'm so helpless because you won't eat. Well, that's because... There's a feeling of frustration and helplessness that the, the kid nobody's listening to, so he has to act it out because he can't speak it out. Any thoughts on psychedelics? Have you tried yourself? Psychedelics are lame, and the people who use them are losers. Until they stop using them, right? And that's fine. Yeah, it's fine. You know, I mean, it's okay. Did I get the vaccine? <laughs> I get the vaccine. Uh, I I have taken 100% of all of the safe vaccines that have been approved of. 100%. (laughs) It's not a vaccine. It's not a vaccine. It's injecting a spike protein, which then attacks your heart. It's not a vaccine. The vaccine is a dead version of the virus that teaches your immune system and prevents infection. This doesn't prevent infection. It doesn't prevent transmission. All it does is suppress symptoms. So... Uh, let's see here. Is it a, lo- a live stream? Yeah, probably a, li- a little later. We'll do we'll do a live stream. 
but um, I, I think you guys are here. You're here for the fear. You're here for the fear. So psychedelics, look, psychedelics in general are self-medication taken by people who don't wish to confront the demons of their childhood. Um, psychedelics are a way to escape a reality rather than turn and face your demons. It's a way of being chased out of a potential heaven in order to live into the hell of addiction. And I understand why people do it. I really do. I understand why people do it. But listen, avoiding self-medication is the essential, essential, essential path to growth and wisdom. You must, must, must avoid self-medication if you want to grow as a human being. And I will give you a specific example. I've talked about this on the show before, but for those who are new, I'll keep it brief. When I, I was in a seven-year relationship, that was really bad because it wasn't so bad. There were some times that were really great, sometimes that were not so great, sometimes that were pretty bad. And it wasn't good enough to really commit to, but it wasn't bad enough to get out. And it was one of these waiting room kind of situations. And uh, anyway, so I'm in this relationship and time's chugging along, but you know, you're in your 20s, so you don't really care. You don't really know, right? I'm going to live forever. So what happened is um, I stopped sleeping. Like I just stopped sleeping. And of course, I would sleep a little bit here and there, but uh, I just, I'm, I'm an eight-hour guy. Like I just, I need my eight hours. And I just stopped sleeping. Couldn't figure out what the heck was going on. I mean, I've always been a night owl, but yeah, normally it's not, not a big, big problem for me with sleep. But, oh man, it was brutal. It was brutal. Anyway, long story short, because I couldn't figure out my insomnia, I ended up going into therapy. My insomnia lasted a brutal 16 months. I went into therapy, and I realized, of course, in hindsight, that I was not able to sleep because in my life, I wasn't awake. I wasn't taking the values that I had studied for well over a decade in the realm of philosophy, and I wasn't applying those to my life. And I was just kind of sleepwalking through my life in a blur and haze of quicksand conformity, rendering myself easygoing in the present, but invisible to my own future. So I woke up. Now, I did not take sleeping pills. If I had taken sleeping pills, I would have medicated the anxiety and the distress away, and I wouldn't have broken out of that. I wouldn't have met my wife. I wouldn't have this wonderful marriage. I wouldn't have this great life. So avoid self-medication. I mean, I'm not talking about antibiotics. <laughs> avoid self-medication. At, at all costs. If you've got an anxiety, an upset, a problem in your life, you know, get therapy, sit down, face it square on, journal. John Gray's got some great books. Nathaniel Brandon has some great workbooks that can really help you sort of map your unconscious. The Road Less Traveled, the uh, great undiscovered country from whose born few travelers return. So did I grow a second personality like Tyler Durden? I had at least a dozen in here. I have a whole therapy journal somewhere. In my files, um, which is all my characters and the arguments we had about how to live. And, uh, yeah, it was really quite something. Now, that's why I developed the idea of the ecosystem that we have to negotiate with ourselves. And there's quite a complexity, a zoo, a, a whole town in here. And to try and think of yourself as one thing is to alienate and eliminate all other aspects of your personality, who then, being excluded, will gang up and undermine you. So... Yeah, psychedelic topic, like I'm just, I'm going to be straight up. I think that 
a lot of people, of course, self-medicate with psychedelics. They self-medicate with weed uh, or, or mushrooms or hashish or whatever it is, smokable, as, as Adam Kokesh says. And I have massive, bottomless, loving, compassionate, empathetic sympathy for the childhood issues that drive people to the level of stress and anxiety that has that be a temptation for them. I really, really do. But you're cheating your future. You're cheating yourself of the depth of emotion that you need to ride through and get through on the other side and become a god among men. I mean, that that's what you need to do. You need to ride through, confront and integrate the anxiety and the demons and not, you know, you understand that when you when you take drugs, you're just deplatforming yourself. That's all you're doing. You're yanking out a platform of a necessary part of you that needs to communicate with you. And you're mistaking your defenses for that which attacked you, right? So I have an inner mom, and my inner mom was there to protect me from the outer mom. I have an inner dad that was there to help me survive the outer dad. And if I think that my inner mom is my enemy when she was, in fact, my friend trying to save me and successfully, as it turned out, if I think my inner mom is my enemy, then all I'm doing is I never get to grow up. And so if I say, oh, my inner mom's making me anxious and therefore I need to smoke weed, then I'm saying that my protector is my enemy and I'm setting myself at war against myself. And, you know, self-divided against itself cannot stand. So, no, I, I think you embrace your demons, you confront them, you absorb them, you integrate them, you gain their power. You gain their power. I feel like you're describing my life. What part? Marcus, what part? So the bad people in your life, I said this to someone the other day. He was concerned that he was smoking weed too much. And I said, he had a bad childhood, of course, and I said, look, the thing is that you think that you're a marijuana user, you're a weed smoker, it's kind of become part of your identity. So you feel, well, if I'm not smoking weed, I'm abandoning a part of myself. I'm, you know, part of myself that likes weed. I'm rejecting a part of myself or whatever it is, right? And I said, no, no, no. You have to look at your addictive side as conquered territory. Bad people conquered you and now you smoke weed. To deal with the trauma of being conquered, you smoke the weed. So the, the, the weed is a mark of surrender to the bad people who've conquered part of your personality and you reclaim your personality by rejecting the drugs that are used to mask the wound of the people who harmed you. You reclaim yourself by not surrendering one inch of yourself to bad people. Surrender not one square centimeter or inch of yourself to the bad people. You reclaim everything and all of you, which is glorious. Absolutely. Ayahuasca is the equivalent of 400 years of therapy. <laughs> yeah, I saw that Weeds episode too. And uh, it's nonsense. It's nonsense. It is a... So the parts of you that were conquered by the evildoers, and we all have those if we grew up with evildoers in our life, and just about all of us have, right, in one form or another. But the parts of you that were conquered by evildoers, they don't want you to wake up to the pain that they caused you because that way they can keep you under their control, whether directly or physically or psychologically. And so they would rather you take drugs than take back your personality, right? I mean, if, you know, Germany invaded 
France in May of 1940 and took over most of the North. And, of course, they would much rather that the French resistance fighters smoke weed than fight back. Right? They want to keep their conquered territory. They want to keep their brand upon you. So they want you to drug the anxiety that their conquering has caused you. Of course. Of course. Of course they do. But I don't let them. Take, take back every part of you. No, you know that Marine thing, like nobody gets left behind in the war? It's the same thing with every part of yourself. No one gets left behind. All of you is glorious. If you are alive and survived early evil, every aspect of you is heroic. Let's see here. Eight years out of high school, failed to launch, no career prospects. How do I stop procrastinating and weed addiction? So most of life is about asking the right questions. Once you have the right questions, the answers are pretty obvious and the course is pretty clear. Almost all of society is designed to avoid you just asking the basic right questions, right? Like, I mean, there's this, all this stuff. What is it, the IRS or, or someone in America leaked a whole bunch of tax records to some group, and then the group has now published it, even though it's private, confidential, financial information, because they're like, oh, look at all these rich guys. They don't pay any taxes. <laughs> so, okay, so let's lower taxes on everyone. <laughs> Shouldn't that be the way? These guys don't pay much in taxes. So the solution, of course, should be to lower taxes for everyone to the amount that is paid by the super rich. And, of course, the thing is, too, that they talk about income taxes, particularly, fed, particularly federal income taxes, which is a total lie. Most rich people don't have incomes in the way that salaried people do. Most rich people make their money from appreciation in real estate, stocks, bonds, crypto, you name it. It's not the same as having a salary. And so comparing... The taxes paid by a salary worker to the taxes taxes paid by a super rich person who's getting their money off stocks is completely irrelevant. Apples to oranges, not even the same category. But yeah, they, they obviously want you to uh, say, oh, the rich are getting away and we've got to enslave them as much as everyone else. And they, you see, what they desperately want to do is they want to get a tax in on unrealized gains, right? That's the big issue that's going on with the government at the moment. They want, they desperately need or feel they need taxes on unrealized gains, you know, so they want to tax you on the money that you've made on crypto, even if you've never sold the crypto, right? Oh, especially. They want to tax you on the money that you have made, at least on paper, uh, on your house, even though you've not sold your house. That, that, that's what they're all sort of aiming aiming towards. Now, so everyone's like, well, how much should the taxes on the rich be? Or how much should we increase the taxes on the rich? Well, that's all the wrong questions. And if they can get you asking the wrong questions, they don't care about the answers. They don't care. It doesn't matter. You're just fighting about nothing. As opposed to, wow, people who are wealthy don't pay much in taxes. So if we want people to become wealthy, we should lower their taxes. <laughs> that could be causal. That could be one thing. Or the other thing, of course, which you could say, very reasonably, is you could say, um, wow, but the government has been in charge of lowering income inequality for about 100 years. About 100 years, they've been trying to redistribute income to lower income inequality. How is that income inequality doing? And of course, the answer is that the income inequality is uh, getting larger and larger and larger. And it's a Y-shaped, it's a K-shaped recovery. Rich are getting richer, poor are getting poorer. So, you know, they're not, how much should we raise, how much should we raise taxes on the wealthy? Crap, right? So, as far as how do you stop procrastinating in weed addiction, you've got to ask the right questions. So, the right questions to ask of an addiction is who benefits from your addiction? 
Who? Who benefits? See, things don't happen for no reason. Things don't happen for no reason. So who benefits from you being taxed? Well, the people on the receiving end of your tax money, right? They benefit from you being taxed. So who benefits from you being on weed? Someone does. Now, it's not you. You don't benefit from being on weed. It's expensive. It's bad for you. can cause psychosis and paranoia. It's bad for your lungs if you smoke it. So you, And it takes away your ambition and your energy and your attraction, your attractability. No, no decent woman uh, is going to want to hang out with a guy who's a pothead. Right? It's just not going to happen, right? So you're not benefiting from the weed. I get the weed dealer is benefiting from it. But I'm sure that you're not that concerned about his income or her income. So who benefits? I can tell you who benefits. Who benefits are the people who traumatized you, the trauma of which is being covered up by the weed? Of course. The people who harmed you to the point where you need weed or you feel you need weed to function, the people who harmed you to the point where you need to self-medicate are the ones who are benefiting from you continuing to self-medicate. Of course, right? Of course. If some doctor does an injury that causes you chronic pain and then just keeps feeding you with opiates so you don't feel the pain and feel happy, who benefits? Well, the doctor. Because he keeps feeding you these opiates so that you don't realize how much pain you're in, find better treatment, and sue his ass off, right? So, of course, he wants to keep feeding you with opiates so that you don't wake up to the damage he's done you. And people in your life who harmed you desperately need you to keep smoking weed, so that you don't wake up to how much they've harmed you, take elemental steps to protect yourself and get to a better place in life. You understand? That's what I mean by occupied territory. The weed serves the bad people. And so as long as you think, well, weed is enlightenment and it's all natural and don't be so square and don't be so uptight and it's just all this weed bullshit culture, which is total, I, I, I hate weed, but I hate weed culture the most. You know, that, that this, it's cool, that it's all natural, that you're too uptight if you don't take it, that there's something wrong with you and you're square and, you know, you're just not comfortable with yourself and you lack self-knowledge and you just can't roll with things and you don't want to visualize how cool, comfortably numb is when you're... Like, it's all bullshit. It's all bullshit. It's all natural. So what? Our stick is natural. You're going to take that? Stick it up your ass? Of course not, right? It's the cool factor around it, which, again, is programmed into you by the abusers so you don't feel the pain of the abuse and get yourself to a safe, safe place. Of course, they want to keep exploiting you. They want to keep hiding from their own conscience. And if you wake up to the abuse that was done unto you and you confront your abusers, they're going to feel like shit, right? They're going to feel really, really bad because you've woken up and you are confronting your abusers. And so they turn from tough but fair parents into abusers, if that's what they were, right? They don't want that. And they've already sacrificed the happiness of your childhood through abuse. So, of course, they're happy to sacrifice your adulthood through drugs, right? It's not complicated once you see it the right way. Every time you take a hit on that bong, every time you suck that reefer, you're simply bowing before the people who've harmed you the most and promising never to disturb their fragile peace of mind. Don't worry. Don't worry, master. I will continue to fog my brain. I will continue to destroy my future. I will continue to waste my money. Don't worry. I'm not a threat to you, man. Don't worry about it. 
Don't feel bad. I'm here to take care of you because you never took care of me, but I'm here to take care of you. I promise I will never, ever say anything to you that's going to make you the slightest bit unhappy or uncomfortable. I would just keep drugging the living shit out of myself rather than cause you, my abuser, any kind of discomfort. Now, being that scared of your abusers to the point where you're willing to drug yourself in perpetuity means that you never get to escape the abusers. You never get to escape the evildoers. You will forever remain a child under the control of abusive people because you would drug yourself rather than speak up for yourself, right? You'll turn yourself into smoke rather than turn your words into facts. Don't do it, man. Don't do it. Don't do it. Uh, I've been masking the trauma for about half of my life. Now with weed, I've yielded to the bad people too much. Well, not yielded. See, again, you've got to watch your language. You haven't yielded to them. They controlled and bullied you, and they implanted in you the need to please them at your own expense. Somebody says, personally, I found the difficulty of sleep issues when quitting weed and having weird mood swings even two months later. Yeah, the detox is pretty, pretty important. Chris says, after quitting weed and everything else, I've changed so much, but I've never been more myself. Somebody says, is an occasional trip or a smoke session still bad? I think other than doing that on occasion, I'm doing all right. Okay. So I want you to think of this. I want you to think of this. And if you've been in the drug culture, you know this, right? So I want you to think of this. Think of a friend who will only get together with you if you both agree to be stoned. Right? So you call him up say, hey, you want to come hang tonight? He's like, do you have weed? I think so. Why? Did you? Yeah, I'll come over, but we got to. We gotta bake, man. We gotta we gotta get high. Well, actually, you know what? I don't I don't think I do have any weed. Oh, I don't either, man. Okay, let's hang another time. Well, how do you feel? He's not there for you. He doesn't want you sober. He doesn't want himself sober. He can't stand you sober, probably. He's only there because he doesn't want to get high alone. So how do you feel about your friend who won't come over unless 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 he can do drugs. Well, he doesn't like you enough sober to come over. Right? I've had this with people who are way too much into alcohol, right? Like every social gathering has to be centered around alcohol, right? And I remember one guy, you know, his big story, this was his whole freaking life. His big story was, oh, yeah, hey, remember that one time I fell asleep in the chair, man? And I fell asleep holding my beer, and then somebody tried to take that beer from me because they, they thought I was gonna gonna spill it or something. And I like I woke up and I like I held on to my beer. Don't you take my beer? And this was like the funniest thing ever. Like that this guy, you tried to take his beer when he was asleep and he woke up and hung onto it because he was what, that addicted to alcohol? Like you couldn't take the beer from the sleeping guy even if he was gonna spill it on his groin. That's pitiful, man. That's 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 so pitiful. There's not even any words for that. That's so sad. And this is a group of people. I didn't hang out with them much, of course, but and didn't last very long. But, yeah, they would only get together and, and be like, who's bringing the beer? And I remember saying, well, why does it have to be beer? <laughs> why does that? Like, do you not like each other sober? Oh, come on, man. A couple of beers after a tough day's work doesn't do anyone any harm. Relax. Relax, man. Have no standards. Be a sieve. Let other people dominate you. Poison yourself a little bit with alcohol every night. 
Uh, what's the matter? Make bad decisions. No funny story ever started with first I ate a salad, right? The I was so drunk stories. Oh, man. I have damaged my brain to the point where I walked into a wall. Oh, 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 oh you're funny. You guys are so funny. You're so funny. <laughs> it's not, not exactly John Cleese comedy out there, right? Not exactly Oscar Wilde out there that you've destroyed your own capacity to have balanced perception of good decisions to the point where you just do something really retarded. And then I fell into a garbage can. Oh, it's sad. Oh, it's so pitiful. So it was the same thing. Like, And that was my fundamental question. Do you not like each other? Like, Why do you have to get drunk every time you get together? Or why do you have to drink every time you get together? Why? <laughs> I remember one of them. You know, when I would say, you know, let's go do something, but, you know, why does it have to be drinking? Um, he'd be like, uh, he'd be like, you know who you are. You're that guy. Like, everyone's up at the cottage. It's Saturday afternoon. Everyone's got a beer in their hand. They're listening to some music, watching the butterflies, listening to the skidoers. And they're feeling pretty mellow. Everybody's just really calm, having a great, you know, listening to music, a little bit of chatting here and there. And you know who you are, Steph? You're the guy who comes up and says, Hey, everybody, let's play Pictionary. <laughs> okay, A, that is actually kind of funny. <laughs> but B, um, no, that's sad. To never have a clear-eyed view of the other person. So the reason I'm saying that is every time you smoke weed, you're saying to yourself, I'd much rather, not, I'd, I'd much rather be less myself. Like, it, it's an improvement for me to be less myself. If I could just be a little less of myself, I'd have a much better time. Now, what does that say to your self-esteem? What does that say to your level of happiness? That you can't be yourself and have a good time. And generally, what you're doing is, if you're doing it socially, you're just saying to other people, I can't stand you sober. Can't stand you sober. All right. There is a procrastination episode, and it literally changed my life more than any other one. Oh, yes. And that was the second take. The first take, the audio wasn't good for some reason, some loose connection somewhere. So somewhere I've got the original, which was way better. <laughs> but the second, yeah. How to put off pr a procrastination. No, this isn't the Panama Papers. This is a new thing that just came out of the last couple of days. Salary tax is brutal. Oh, yeah. So this is why, uh, this is why they desperately want kids to stay out of the workforce, right? This is why they want to hire a bunch of immigrants or bring a bunch of immigrants in to do the work that teenagers used to do in America. You have to, have to, have to keep people out of the workforce. Because, you know, we've all had that sticker shock where you say, hey, I'm making $30,000 or $40,000 a year. Wow, that's how much a week? Wow, that's, that's $800, $900 a week over the course of the month. That's, wow, 3600 bucks. That's fantastic. And then you get your paycheck and it's like $8 in taxes, right? And so, yeah, they got to keep Keep people in college, keep people, they have them go from college to government work so they never ever are on the paying side of the equation, right? All right, let's see here. Couldn't think tobacco is healthy. Uh, let's see, how is your problem with the black gate going? Oh, good continuity. Well, it's, uh, it's there. Stoner culture annoys the heck out of me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, all that teach and chong, amen, you know, that kind of stuff. It's like, that's sad. That's just absolutely sad. How did you wake up? Did you reevaluate life? No, I woke up because I couldn't go to sleep, and I went to therapy, and I worked like hell. And <sighs> just uh, I started working from the empiricism of inside rather than the reason from outside. 
let's see here. Uh, big helpers for me. Journaling, regular exercise, gardening, reflection. Yeah. Yeah. When can we make a statue for Steph's inevitable time in the future where he's remembered as we remember Einstein and such? Yeah, it's kind. That's kind. I, I, listen, I'll be honest. I'm with you. Occasionally, I do get a pang, you know, when it's like, was it Michael Malice is on jo- uh, is on Jordan Peterson's podcast and all that. It's like, I remember when I was helping those guys into the public sphere. <laughs> How times do change, but no regrets. No regrets. All right. Let's see here. Oh, you've had friends like that? Yeah. Uh, yeah, smoking weed is bad. It's bad for you. Uh, oh, yeah, the names they give all these different strains. Milfweed, wasn't that in weeds? Milfweed. Being the only sober guy in that group got old quickly. Oh, yeah, you're the designated driver, which means you find out how useless as tits on a bull your friends are when they're drunk and you're not. It's like, oh, I thought you guys were interesting and entertaining. Turns out you're just alcohol stupid. <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah, man, you got to try this new Indica strain. It's called Tropical Spaghetti Ballsack. It's the bomb. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Nothing wrong with a little drinky poo. Yeah, I, it's fine. Look, I, I've got this book, which I'm going to read over the next week or two, which is um, The History of Alcohol and, and How It Helped Found Civilization by Lowering Inhibitions and Giving People Tribal Cohesion. I get all of that. I get all that. Like Scrabble? I love Scrabble. I can't. I, I can win maybe two times out of five against my wife. Man, she is, she is a Scrabble machine. She's just incredible, right? Uh, weed and alcohol are two very different drugs. Weed, weed and making music definitely mix. Hey, Steph, being 25, the clock is ticking. Any thoughts on figuring out what career one might want? Sorry, so weed and making music definitely mix. But here's the thing. If you have a musician who uses weed to gain access to creativity... Does that creativity last? Because if it's a shortcut, then you'll get a boost, and then it won't last. So I'm aware, very aware. So I started public philosophy in 2005, right? So this is 17 years later, right? 16, 17 years later. So the general peak creativity is 15 years. 15 years of your peak creativity, right? So... My big question is, see, a, a lot of bands, like, they'll, they'll do all of their hits, and then they suck, right? I mean, honestly, Innuendo from Queen, not a super great album. Made in Heaven, it eh, wouldn't have ever made their name, right? You know, n- nothing compared to um, Day of the Races, Night at the Opera, The Game, nothing like that, right? Even The Miracle was just so-so. But it's different for me. I don't have that option, right? So I, I'm not like, uh, oh, I had... 10, 15 years of peak creativity, and now I can go and mime the story of your enslavement for money for the rest of my life, right? Like the Monty Python guys went back when they were touring. Uh, pe- people would say, we don't want any new stuff. They're like, yeah, we, we just want, we'll just do the old stuff, plus we're too old to learn new stuff anyway, right? So my big question here, knowing this 15 years of, of creativity, right? Uh, that that's the typical thing. But I think that's a lot to do with people who become creative because they smoke cigarettes, they become creative because they drink alcohol. Uh, what is it they say? Write a drunk, edit sober. And so my big question is, will I be able to keep creativity going because I've not used any artificial stimulants to produce philosophy? 
I have not used ayahuasca or weed or drugs or nicotine. Like I have been sober the entire time that I have been doing philosophy. So my theory is that I won't have the 15-year window and I will be able to keep my productivity going. Now, I've already two years passed, a year or two past the 15-year window. So, so far, I think I'm doing some of the best work I've ever done. So, so far, the theory appears to be holding. So, yes, for sure. In the same way that being an alcoholic can help you with social anxiety, right? A lot of alcoholism is medicating for social anxiety. So, yeah, you can do that, but it comes at a cost, right? So, nothing comes for free in this life. And I'm, I'm a slow and steady wins the race kind of guy. So, all right. Uh, what career one might want. So if you're still doing weed, you're suppressing your life force. You're suppressing your hunger, your mammalian life energy. You're striving, your willingness to fight, to take risks, to stand for something, even if it costs you a lot, right? And so you say, well, uh, I, I, I smoke weed because I don't know what I want to do with my life. It's like, no, no, no. You don't, want to, you don't know what you want to do with your life because weed is suppressing your life energy. It's suppressing your hunger for something other than Ren and Stimpy cartoons, right? So quit the weed, I'm sure, and you'll figure out uh, what you want to do. Pretty, pretty life. You were great on Caravan to Midnight. Really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Any advice for learning how to self-soothe as an adult? That's interesting. Learning how to self-soothe as an adult. Well, get yourself away from people who harm you because then you won't need to self-soothe so much, right? So get yourself away from people who are abusive, exploitive, narcissistic, uh, you know, destructive, uh, manipulative, uh, greedy, selfish, whatever, right? Just get yourself, get, get around, get, get yourself surrounded by people who actually care about you. And then you won't need this, you know, it's like saying, how do I, how do I keep dealing with my sunburns? It's like, well, how about, you know, aloe vera, I think helps, but you know, maybe just a little less time in the sun or some sunscreen. So just stop being hurt as much and you won't need to self-soothe as much for sure. Because if you were excellent at self-soothing, that would be more temptation to stay around people who were doing you damage, right? The Beatles. Well, okay. Yeah, the Beatles, right? They didn't last. They didn't last, right? They were, what, less than 10 years? Is that right? So the Beatles didn't last, and the breakup was very acrimonious. And Paul McCartney, his creative peak, I mean, what was the last hit song he wrote since the 1980s, right? He tried teaming up with Elvis Costello and they, Paul McCartney got nowhere. I listened to his last album out of farewell respect for Abbey Road, like the Paul McCartney 3. Uh, awful. Like, like if a friend played it to you, be like, mm, I don't know, man, it's, it just maybe isn't your thing. Uh, it, was, it was absolutely terrible. Not just his voice is wrecked, which is a shame because it was a glorious instrument, like four octaves of, of shrieky rock house glory. But yeah, he... Um, he, he didn't last in terms of his creativity, right? He didn't. I mean, would you say, I mean, he did the duets with um, Stevie Wonder. He did one with Michael Jackson. Um, but duets, you know, not exactly classic songs. So, you know, the Beatles were 64 to 70, right? Okay, so they had six or seven years. Paul McCartney had another seven years with uh, Wings. And by the late mid-late 70s, uh, he was done as a creative force, right? Again, maybe I missed something. I haven't exactly studied his career in depth. It was like the Neil Young thing. You got Harvest uh, and then what, right? Bunch of techno crap and, and one song from the soundtrack to Philadelphia. That, that's about it, right? So 
if you look at creative people and you look at that peak, right? I mean, Freddie Mercury on cocaine writes amazing songs like Bohemian Rhapsody and then ends up when he's more sober uh, writing a song which is a love poem to his cat. I shit you not. Look up the song Delilah by Queen where you have all of the Queen members pretending to be cats in the background while Freddie Mercury shrieks that he's very upset that his cat is peeing on his Chesterfield. Chippendale. You know, when you pee all over my Chippendale sweet Delilah. <laughs> oh my God. Like, holy horrors, Batman. <laughs> what are you doing? You're making a love song to your cat and everyone in the background where they used to be going, Galileo, Galileo. They're now going, meow. <laughs> Good Lord. Oh, how embarrassing. How far a band can fall, right? But anyway, that's... Uh... Caffeine is still a drug. Ah, no, it's not. I mean, that's like saying, um, I don't know, all foods are drugs and uh, sugar is a drug. And uh, you, you buy a peach, it's not the same as smoking weed, right? Cup of coffee is not the same as LSD. So anyway. I used to smoke and music was incredible. I noticed tolerance building rapidly got scared and stopped. Yeah. So no cocaine roundtable, no. All right. Um, should we get to the... Uh, Joe Rogan's creativity is diminishing. It seems like he trends less and less now. Well, I mean, since he went over to Spotify and took his 100 million pieces of silver for going with the China Communist Party-aligned company and getting people like me scrubbed from his back, back, uh, his backlog. Uh, backlog? Back catalog. There we go. <laughs> There's the word. Thank you, brain. His back catalog. Yeah, you know, I mean, I mean, Joe Rogan is... Uh, I don't actually know that there's much to say about Joe Rogan. I mean, he's got no principles. He's a weather vane. Uh, he snarled at me for like three hours straight because I was apparently such a bad guy. He has Stephen Tyler on who actually adopted a kid for ungodly purposes. And he's like, oh, you're so great. I mean, he's just a, he's a court toady, right? He's a bully. And uh, I haven't obviously listened to his shows in years, years and years and years. All right. Uh, let's see here. Yeah, so I, I've cut down caffeine consumption over the last uh, little while. I'm down to maybe a cup and a half a day, so it's really not, not much. But yeah, I'm sure you can get I mean, I remember a friend of mine, he used to play squash within university. He ended up in hospital because he had 20 cups of coffee in the morning, and that's, that's not good. <laughs> that's absolutely not good. All right, are we caught up here? Paul McCartney made a song for the first Destiny video game, and it was garbage. Yeah. I feel like Cash had a lot more emotion and purpose after he got sober. You mean Johnny Cash? Well, sure, but but did, did he write great songs? Did he write, you know, did he have Folsom City, sorry, Folsom Prison Blues kind of stuff? No. Perhaps all the communism that kills creativity, yeah. Uh, the Beatles' influence on culture sure lasted a long time, though all you need is love means you can sell your kids into slavery. Mm, maybe. <laughs> I doubt it. Karl Marx was related to the Rothschilds? Eh, maybe. Yeah, China owns Joe Rogan. Yeah, it's uh, very sad. It's very sad. Oh, you guys don't... You don't know the Stephen Tyler thing? You don't know this? Do you know the Bowie thing? Or Bowie had sex with a 14-year-old girl? Very well documented, very very open. She's talked about it repeatedly. He's never denied it or never denied it. So, yeah, child, uh, child statutory rapist. 
Um, uh, do you want me? Do you want me to look this up? I, I can look this up. I can look this up. Uh, yeah, uh, it's probably worth knowing. Um, let's let's put the story out there. I've mentioned this before, but uh, oh yeah, here we go. Uh, so Stephen Taylor, uh, Stephen Tyler, singer for Aerosmith, who now looks like somebody's granny, uh, once adopted and impregnated a teenager. Right, so he once adopted, dated, and impregnated a then 16-year-old girl named Julia Holcomb. He has, at the age of 70, opened a facility in Memphis for girls who've been neglected or abused. So, yeah, so Tyler's relationship with Holcomb, she's written about it extensively. Um, she says she met Stephen Tyler in 1973 when she had just turned 16, having endured a litany of tough circumstances in her family life. Shortly after Holcomb's mother signed over guardianship for her to Tyler, quote, this is from her, he had mentioned that he wanted guardianship papers so I could travel across state lines when he was on tour. Right, so underage harem, right, he wants to be able to travel across state lines without getting in trouble. Um, and later in the lead up to discussing her pregnancy and subsequent abortion, quote, I wanted children and began to believe he must truly love me since he had made himself my guardian and was asking to have children with me. He threw my birth control pills off the balcony of the hotel where we were staying into the street far below. Later, Holcomb said she landed in the hospital after their apartment caught fire when she was five months pregnant, at which point Tyler coerced her into getting an abortion. So you can look up more of this as you uh, as you see fit, right? But this is, I mean, this is Joe Rogan, right? So I'm just this little podcaster guy, right? And and Joe Rogan is browbeating me for saying you don't have to stay in abusive relationships, even if it's with your parents. Uh, he's just, you know, he's he's got everything queued up and he's cornering me and quoting me back and, you know, really slamming harsh on me uh, out of nowhere, right? I mean, we'd had two very fun shows before. He'd said, hey, man, I love what you do. I, anything I can do to help your career. And then he totally turned on me because I'm this little podcaster guy, right? But he's basically sucking off Stephen Tyler, who, according to this girl, and I think some facts as well, a adopted a child and impregnated her. Adopted a child so he could travel across state lines and impregnated her. Um, did that come up with Joe Rogan? <laughs> I don't mean to laugh, because, but of course not. Of course not, right? So yeah, Joe Rogan is, um, I don't even know what to say, is uh, a, a fundamentally inconsequential uh, human being, uh, as far as all of that goes. And uh, he was mad at me for what? Saying that you didn't have to stay with abusive people and didn't he marry a single mom or something like that? I, I, I can't remember. Anyway, so, yeah, it's all... She, she broke up her family, right? All right. Um, ASMR is a hot topic. Should I look? Uh, great art often comes out of great trauma. Weird how that works. I wouldn't say that necessarily because, it's, of course, there are tons of people who are not traumatized, who also produce some fantastic art. I think the way it works is trauma produces addiction. Addiction lowers inhibitions. Lowering inhibitions increases creativity. Increased creativity produces great art. Steph, have you ever considered doing one-on-one -on -one coaching or group coaching in addition to your donation model? Of course, yeah. I've, I've, thought, of, I've thought of all of these things, but... Um, the purpose of 
the whatever it is that I do, the, the listener call-ins. The purpose of that is not just to help the individual, of course, it's to help people as a whole. And so if I were to be doing it one-on-one, I, I, I don't like it being a cash transaction. Like, I just don't. And I'm, I'm free market guy, so there's nothing against that or anything, but I just would rather just be passionately focused on the quality of the conversation that's happening, how much I can help that person, and how much through helping that person I can help others. Whereas if I was getting paid uh, for a one-on-one sort of private thing, I don't think it would bring, I don't think I would be nearly as good if it wasn't something going out into the world because I'm very much aware of how much I can exercise my mind to do better. So I don't think I would do as well uh, if it was that that way. Are you going to finish Bioshock? Um, I don't know. Uh, it depends on the level of interest about the show. Um, and, and is it just more of the same? I don't know. People can can let me know. Let's see here. Yeah, video games and everything is all this social justice warrior stuff. It's like if you looked at ads, there aren't any white people left in the world. Don't like Bioshock, but that video analyzing it was awesome. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, what do we got here? Why do most drugs flow to the West? Is drug use low in third world countries? Uh, alcoholism is very high in Africa, and that's uh, that's pretty bad. That's uh, that's pretty bad. Uh, so drugs will flow to the West. I mean, there's two fundamental reasons why drugs flow to the West. One is that China ships fentanyl to the West as a weapon of war. It's an act of war, in my humble opinion. And um, the other, of course, is that drugs flow to the West because that's where the money is, right? That The people in the West have more money, a lot of it coming from welfare and debt. But people in the West have more money, so you're going to ship the... Uh, but fentanyl, what is it, killing 70,000 people a year in the U.S., something like that? I mean, it's a Vietnam War every year. Uh, it's total active war, as far as I could tell. All right, so let's see here. Rogan was mad at you for saying maybe Robin Williams' crappy relationship contributed to his suicide. I I know he was yeah, and it seemed oddly personal. It seemed oddly personal that uh, the the me maybe the me plus thing where you can't just be yourself. You have to be you plus being really funny or really attractive or really wealthy. You can't just be yourself. I don't know. I mean, it, he did seem to take that rather personally. And, you know, people who don't know that a strong emotional reaction is not an indication that someone did something wrong, like people who don't know that, who genuinely believe that if someone has upset you, they're a bad person, uh, someone who doesn't know that is just very unstable and dangerous uh, to, to be around, right? Ah, let's see here. No justification, but with pedos being so prevalent, is it possible that it is a type of birth defect or is it a moral line people cross? So uh, I don't know. I don't know. But pedophilia to me, uh, from people I've talked to, from the research that I've done, uh, from experts I've consulted, uh, pedophilia is something that... So we're born sexually blank as human beings. We're born sexually blank because sexual habits differ so enormously across the... I mean, you know, when if you were a kid growing up like me in the 70s, um, my father had bought my mother and myself a National Geographic special. Uh, sorry, the National Geographic's like the yellow magazines that used to come every month. One of them came with a plastic record of whale song, which I thought was actually kind of neat. Anyway, so every now and then you'd, they'd have pictures of African villages and there'd be these women, of course, uh, walking around with their breasts out, right? And as a kid, you're like, whoa, <laughs> I haven't seen these for a while, but I remember them being slightly different colored and larger because they were more up close. Anyway. So, 
you, in various cultures, there are various sexual norms. And so as human beings, we are heavily imprinted by our first sexual experiences. And if you look at sexuality within yourself, you will probably find that you are drawn to whatever you happened to be exposed to, so to speak, when you were uh, younger. I remember seeing some documentary many years ago about a guy who liked to be encased in rubber and have a prostitute choke off his uh, uh, his breathing, right? Because, you know, apparently there's just no freak that isn't <laughs> can, can not be freaky enough. And it turned out when he was interviewed that um, the girls in the neighborhood used to sort of chase him down and, and hold him down and, and cover his mouth and, you know, that this was his... Uh, sexual awakening, so to speak. And if you look at your own sexual awakening, you will see, I think, that stuff that you're drawn to as an adult has a lot to do with what you saw as a child. And evolutionarily speaking, or it doesn't have to be a child, it could be a, a young man, it could be a teenager, whatever, right? And so this makes perfect sense from an evolutionary standpoint, right? From an evolutionary standpoint, you would want, for maximum reproductive success, you would want the human genome to be um, attracted to whatever the local customs were, right? That that would be the way things would be done. Because, you know, we, you would get kidnapped sometimes, a woman would be a weapon of war, and, and so whatever, right? So her kids would need to grow up with the new sexual imprinting because it could be like one town here, they like this, one town here, they like that, and, you know, you'd, you'd want whatever you're born, you'd want to adapt to your local environment. So I believe that sexual imprinting explains a lot of human sexuality, which is another one of the reasons why pornography can be so difficult for, for kids, because they can imprint on entirely weird stuff. So I think with pedophilia, if you are molested as a child, that, tragically, is your sexual imprinting. It doesn't mean you're doomed to it. It doesn't mean you have to repeat it. But I think for a lot of people, that's just what sex is. And it seems to be kind of like you know, like if you've ever seen, you know, the sidewalks, they fix a sidewalk and then some some duck uh, or or some squirrel walks across it and you can see the squirrel footprint like 20 years later, right? So when you're young, there's an imprinting thing which has some flexibility, but it, I hate to sort of put it this way, it tends to harden. Sexual imprinting tends to harden over time. And I think if it's not denormalized, in other words, if pedophilia is everywhere in your environment, then, or at least it's not opposed or attacked or criticized or uh, maybe police action is taken against the pedophile, in which case it's like, okay, so this is deviant and horrible and illegal and immoral, so I shouldn't do that. But if it's kind of everywhere and accepted and, and cool and whatever, right, then I think you get imprinted for adult-child sexual relations. You get imprinted because you're the child, and then if you're, and there are some cultures where sexual, um, exploitation of children, uh, Af Afghanistan, right? They've got these whole dancing boys, I can't remember their name, but this is one of the reasons why the Taliban became successful uh, in, in Afghanistan, because everybody was so disgusted by uh, these uh, older men who would have these dancing boys and then would rape the children, would rape the boys. And in fact, the American soldiers in Afghanistan were expressly told not to interfere with that revolting predatory behavior. Well, you know, Afghanistan got an average IQ of 86. I mean, really, what are you going to do? Uh, but so I think that it's not a birth defect. And I don't think it's, I mean, obviously it's immoral to do, but I think that it is imprinted through the uniform 
pr uh, practice or justifications or at least non-criticisms of pedophilia in a child's environment. Uh, and if the pedophilia is denormalized, if it's attacked, if it's rejected, if, if there's horror, even if legal action is not pursued, I think it breaks the imprinting. But if everybody just kind of rolls with the sexual predation on children, then I think you're going to end up growing up. And, and look, come on. I mean, how on earth would somebody end up with sexual desire for children? I mean, it's such a repulsive concept, right? But again, we imprint on just about anything. I mean, I'm sure there are other sexual practices in other cultures or other societies or other countries where you look at it and you say, oh, my God, <laughs> you know, that doesn't make any sense to me at all. But, you know, it makes sense to those uh, particular people, right? I mean, the, the the Japanese thing where the woman has like crazy heavy makeup and a big giant hat and all that, it's like, it doesn't, doesn't really do much for me. I just think of her getting rained on and her being half the size when it's all done. Or the anime stuff, right? Like the anime stuff where it basically is half pedophilia to begin with because you have these sexualized women with big boobs and they've got eye head dimensions that are early childhood. Like it's really weird stuff, right? And some of the Japanese stuff, uh, I don't know really what goes on in China, but some of the Japanese stuff is like, not for me. <laughs> do not want, do not want. And I'm sure that some of the Western stuff may not be that satisfying for them. But again, if you, you, you would not be sexually successful in Japan unless you conformed to whatever their local sexual preferences are as a whole. And I'm sure it's different for different regions and so on. So I think it's, um, it's a heavy imprinting without societal opposition that has the channels of sexuality point in that direction, if that makes any sense. Uh, I fear the day you're gone, there will never be another like you in what you do. There never will be. There never will be a, um, there will be another, never be another one like me because I'm one of a kind and everyone who comes after me who is like me has already known of me or I've already existed. So there'll never be, uh, there'll never be a number me and, 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 and there'll never be a beta me. There'll never be a me mark too. It'll never happen. So yeah, it's really, really cool. Uh, let's see here. People talking about the call in. What do we got? Uh, this makes sense about the coaching thing. Your call-in shows help me a lot indirectly. Yes, I agree. Although you got to watch with the call-in shows that you're not just listening, that you actually do have to implement the ideals. Um, listening to the call-in shows has helped me ask questions about my own childhood and it's helped. Yeah. Good, good. I'm glad. Uh, Joe Rogan always wants his guests to be funny slash relaxing. Oh, that's how it feels to me. Yeah. I am, uh, have you ever thought of debating a pro-child spanker or abuser who has a big audience? Yeah, I did a debate with um, Dr. Walter Block about spanking many years ago. Hey, if you if you know of someone, let's do it. Let's set it up. Any other video games that have an interesting philosophy? Um, I don't know, really. I don't I haven't really noticed any, although people keep mentioning things. Bill Gates must have a boner for the amount killed by fentanyl because he's a eugenicist. Yeah, it's funny. People call me a eugenicist when I'm not, and they invite Bill Gates. Well, of course, Bill Gates has billions of dollars to give away, and I don't. So. Uh, unfortunately, pedophilia is the next frontier for leftists once this trans movement is complete. Well, I mean, and unfortunately and tragically, you know, if you want to destroy a society, you get the fathers out of the home. And that way, the kids are prey for whoever comes along who has is that way inclined. So, your show with the vor explained this perfectly. <laughs> vor, 
<laughs> that all? What does that mean? What does that mean? The lip rings really freaked me out. Oh, yeah, and they're really long. Right, the long necks, right? So look at that, right? So there are certain African tribes where the woman has to have a fantastically long neck in order to be considered attractive. And so they put these rings on them and they, right, it goes way up. And to me, it's just kind of freaky. And you think of taking that neck stuff off and the whole neck just flops over like a really old piece of lettuce or something. It's like, yeah, that's not for me, but you know, other people are there, right? The Taliban also banned the rape of goats. I don't think that's true, isn't it? Is that Stefan is the goat. Wait, wrong Roman to bring that up. Yeah, I guess that's true. I guess that's true. Oh, yeah. And I mean, you guys know about the uh, the Spielberg stuff, right? Spielberg and George Lucas. You got about all this stuff, right? I, I talked about this a while back ago. Um, well, yeah, Spielberg's daughter is she, she's become a porn star and Spielberg say, hey, we're intrigued. Um, yeah, so uh, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg continually wanted there to be half molestation scenes in the movies, you know? I mean, you look at this in uh, Indiana Jones, or the first Indiana Jones. Was it Karen Allen who plays the woman? I was just a child, and she's not kidding, right? Yeah, she was. Uh, she was just a child. So, yeah, they're constantly having these um, uh, conversations about, um, boy, wouldn't it be great if if it was a child that, that he had sex with, just the continual stuff. It's, uh, let me see if I can find the quote here. Yeah, when Jones first sees Marion in her bar, they discuss the falling out he had with her father after they engaged in some kind of romantic relationship. Marion is holding a grudge and shouts at Jones, I was a child! You knew what you were doing, Jones snaps back, and uh, that's, uh, that's not good. I think, uh, yeah, that, that this continual thing that these two guys are continually, uh, sorry, continual, <laughs> continual, uh, continually talking about. You can look this stuff up. It's really, really horrendous. Didn't even notice the title. What is your worst fear? Your worst fear is I'm not going to get to the topic. Should I? I mean, it's too much. You guys are too interesting. Sorry. You're too interesting. Anime also does that thing where a 600-year-old vampire character just happens to have the body of a 12-year-old girl. Yes. Tentacles are a no-go <laughs> no for Steph. Yes, that's right. That's right. Vor is a type of fetish, but I cannot remember which. <laughs> Things I will not look up. Uh, let's see here. This guy's uh, first experience with a girl at 12. Hot for sixth grade teacher. Blonde 20-year-old in early 20s. Young teens still attractive. Oh, that's you were 12 too, right? Uh, you had the show where the guy fantasized about being eaten. He called it being a vor. Is that right? Your podcast, Making Excuses for Evil People, really helped me lately. 2563. Yeah, pod, uh, uh, fdrpodcast.com. fdrpodcasts.com. Any thoughts on the Pope saying commie things, even though it violates damn near every commandment? Well, so I'll tell you a theory. I'll tell you a theory. Nature strives for balance. And we all know this our selected thing, right? So what happens with rabbits? Rabbits just breed and breed and breed and breed and breed until they run out of food and then they all starve to death. In other words, they act on the assumption of infinite 
abundance of infinite resources. They're never going to run out of anything to eat, so they might as well just have as many rablet, rablets, <laughs> rabbitlets as humanly possible, baby rabbits. So they, this is our selected, right? You just you have kids and kids and kids, and eventually, what happens is they eat all the resources, and nature achieves balance. Then the rabbits all all starve to death, right? Rabbits all starve to death. Now, it's not the same with case-selected creatures like like wolves and owls and so on, right? It's different, right? So, I would say one possibility is why is it that whenever there's an abundance in human society, you get this socialism, this forced redistribution, you name it, right? Why? Well, I think it's nature striving for balance. So I think what happens is a society becomes very successful, starts to push all of the other animals aside, starts to push all of the plants aside, starts to consume a lot of resources, and then you get the infinite resource fantasy of fiat currency. And then what happens is, in the same way that the rabbits eat themselves back into balance with nature, we, have, we socialist ourselves back into balance with nature. In other words, we have a very successful society based upon a knowledge of constraints, right? That all resources are finite, all desires are infinite, and you need a free market, private property rights negotiation, which keeps things constrained. And then we become very successful and become very wealthy. What happens is there's a balance that then occurs, which you see all the time in nature. And so we overreach, and then there's a big die-off because we become so successful that we then redistribute, and then there's too many people, too few resources, there's a big die-off, and society or nature as a whole kind of returns to normal. You end up with this fight club scene where they're talking about hunting deer in the shadows of the Empire State Building and so on, right? So yeah, why? Why would it be the case? It's the same thing with um, uh, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations, right? You get the, the grandfather works ferociously hard because he comes from a really poor background, got big ambitions, works very, very hard, builds this big fortune, and then the his son is still has direct contact with his dad who raised him, so gets a pretty good work ethic, but doesn't have the same driving necessity of making some money. And then the grandfather dies, and then the his son's son uh, grows up to be uh, a lazy wastrel who destroys the fortune. Like, it, success is failure, right? Failure is success, and success is failure in this sense, right? So the failure of the grandfather's parents to provide any kind of stability drives the grandfather to create the wealth, and then the success of the grandfather's wealth decays the work ethic in the following generations, and it just gets released again. This is why when people are bothered by the rich, it's like, hey, just wait a generation, man. <laughs> just wait a generation. It'll all be this big churn in society, right? It's the same thing with civilizations. Oh, such a successful civilization. We can do anything. We can afford anything. We can pay for anything. And they just destroy themselves, right? I mean, this is just cycle of life, man, cycle of nature, at least while we have a government. Without a government, we break it, but... All right. Let's see here. What do you think of Malcolm Gladwell? I'm reading one of his books. I actually sat next to Malcolm Gladwell at a cafe once. Um, yeah, I mean, he's a smart guy. You got to envy that hair. And uh, he's, uh, you know what? He's an insight guy. He's an insight guy. So he'll give you kind of insights. And, you know, I refer to it as cocktail conversation stuff, like you're at a party and you want to bring stuff up that's interesting enough to engage people, but will never, ever offend anyone. Right, so he's got this blink thing, which is kind of clever, right? Which he says, you know everything like within a second, right? And he says that there are studies where you got to hear like three seconds of a professor. You couldn't even hear what the professor was saying. It was all muffled. And you got to say, is this a good or bad professor? You got to hear the same three seconds from a doctor. Is this a good or bad doctor? And in fact, in three seconds, people picked up as much as the doctor's 
had patients for years, gave him reviews. The professor had uh, students for years, gave him reviews. And so within a couple of seconds, you can enormously process information and come to some very accurate conclusions. It's called this blink phenomenon. I think it's interesting, right? So you talk about this stuff, no one's going to get offended. And people will in general find it interesting. He's got this other thing about the sort of 10,000 hours. Why were the Beatles so good? Because they spent two years in Hamburg playing six or eight hours a day. And they played more live in those two years than most bands do in their entire career. They just got so good at music and so good at, at translating ideas to, to songs that that's one of the reasons they became so uh, amazing. So and He's got this thing says, okay, well, if, you, if you're 6,000 hours, you're good at piano. If you're 8,000 hours, you're a piano teacher. If you're 10,000 hours at the piano, then you're a concert pianist, right? So it's just, but, you know, is that cause and effect, right? Maybe the people, they plateau earlier, so maybe they don't go much beyond 6,000 hours because the last 1,000 hours, they haven't got that much better. Uh, so it could be that the people who work more at these things or do so because they're better at them not they just become better at them because they work more like if you took the guy with 6,000 hours gave him another 4,000 hours would that mean he's a concept pianist I doubt it like why do I work so hard at philosophy because I'm really good at it <laughs> it comes very easily to me and I'm really good at it so um, it, it's not like I've, I've now put in probably 60,000 hours in philosophy right I was just thinking about this the other day, like all the people I've interviewed, all the work that I've done, all the books I've read, all of like just my, I mean, I'm really stuffed full uh, of, of knowledge and, and some wisdom and all that. And But does that mean that you take the average person off the street, you give them 60,000 hours that they'd be doing what I'm doing? No. The reason I want to do 60,000 hours is because really, really enjoy it. Uh, and uh, I love what I do. Somebody posted the other day on Facebook, they were, uh, if you could, you know, what did you dream of doing as a kid? I'm like, this is about it, man. This is fantastic. This is about as good as it is going to get for any human being, uh, mortal or not. So, yeah, Malcolm Gladwell, he is, he's cocktail conversation. He's interesting insights, and it's kind of cool what he talks about. And, you know, does it really help you that much in your life? No, but it helps you pass the time with people you don't have much in common with. So he's kind of like a social glue kind of guy. But he doesn't take on anything controversial. Plus, he's really pushed back against the IQ uh, stuff um, for reasons that don't exist. So he's not a guy who's a mover and shaker. He's not going to last the test of time. He's not going to change the world, but he's an entertaining uh, piece of brain fast food to while away some time. All right. Let's see here. Steph, should I get vaccinated for a chance to win a million dollars in Alberta? So you know how government programs play out, right? Do you really want your immune system to be a government program? <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, and by the way, Brett Weinstein, no, Brett Weinstein, he does this podcast called, the I think it's called the Dark Horse Podcast or Dark Horse Podcast. So Brett Weinstein has been doing some amazing work in the realm of coronavirus. He's, you know, man's taken some real risks, got to hand it to him. Uh, he's got some real balls and he's got some great experts on and he is facilitating some very powerful conversations about COVID. Like he had some guys on recently who were pointing out the concentration of the spike particles, I think it was, in the COVID vaccine, uh, where they concentrate uh, and the effects they could have on fertility and so on. Like kudos to them. Like fantastic, great job, massive props, massive respect for what he's doing. I'm sure there's a lot we disagree on, but nonetheless, credit where credit is due. Uh, you should really, uh, really should, you should really check it out. So let's see here. You guys are too much fun. 
Uh, how does the shirts to shirt sleeves explain Fred Trump Sr. to Donald Trump to Trump Jr. to Baron Trump? They are still rich. Do you not? <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, lemonade. I don't even know how to answer that. <laughs> do, you know, do you know what a bell curve is? Do you know? Wait a minute. If the average woman is shorter than the average man, how does that explain my tall aunt? You know, because of free will, you can't have iron laws about human tendencies or human populations, right? You, you know that, right? So it could be, of course, that, of course, you look Fred's shirt sleeve to shirt sleeve. Didn't Donald Trump's brother die in his 40s from alcoholism? Boy, that didn't seem to work out too well. So Fred Trump Sr. made a lot of money. Donald Trump made a lot of money. Trump, uh, Donald Trump Jr., I don't know if he's made a lot of money. I assume he has. Baron Trump? Baron Trump's still a kid. He's a tall kid. <laughs> what are they feeding that guy? giraffe balls but um yeah so you will find you will find families believe it or not it's a bell curve welcome to the if you can't do the bell curve you can't do this show like i'm sorry if you i don't mean the iq bell curve i just mean bell curves in general if you're like i can think of an exception to a to a trend you know that phrase the exception that proves the rule right so because you think of it as an exception that's what proves the rule because it's an exception, right? So if you can't do the bell curve, please, please don't, don't, don't hang around. And no, no disrespect to you. I'm sure you can now. You've ex now you've had it explained to you. But just in general, if I put forward a tendency and you think you've rebutted me by coming up with an exception, this is not the show for you. There are tons of other shows. I mean, Joe Rogan, you go back to Joe Rogan, right? There's tons of other shows out there that you could uh, work on. But um, yeah, if uh, shirt sleeve, shirt sleeve. Well, I can think of an exception. It's like yes. Yes, congratulations. You can think of an exception. You know, 19 out of 20 businesses fail in their first five years. Well, wait a minute. How does that explain the 20th one? <laughs> 19 out of 20 families do shirt sleeve to shirt sleeve. Well, what about that other one? That's why I said 19, and that's why I didn't say it was absolute, and that's why I believe in free will. Yeah, higher IQ people make more money in general, and they pass on their IQ genes. Yeah, so IQ is 80% inheritable. Uh, and more, right? It's 80% by your mid to late teens, more so after that. So, um, yeah, high IQ people will then, but you know, it's it's regression to the mean, right? So lower IQ people will tend to have higher IQ children within their population, right? And higher IQ people will tend to have children who are higher in IQ, but not as high as they are. So you've got somebody with an IQ of 140, they're probably going to have a kid with an IQ of 120, 125, which still means you can do pretty much anything you want to do in, in life, but, uh, yeah, somebody, two people with an IQ of 90, assuming they're white or whatever, they're going to have an IQ 95, 97 kid. It's just going to, right, it evens out. Right? Do you like Led Zeppelin? So I like some of the music. I, I really do. And, and you can't do anything but drop your jaw in wonder at the technical mastery of the genre. I mean, the drummer was astounding. The guitarist was astounding. The vocalist, I mean, Robert Plant is a vocalist. You listen to his early stuff. Uh, it's just astounding. However, that having been said, I can't help shake the feeling that the whole band is motivated by a kind of satanic evil. It is just dark and ugly and heavy, and it's never been, and there's no variety in it to me. There's not like, uh, you know, I mean, Queen had some of their heavy songs, and then they had uh, Who Needs You off uh, News of the World. It's a great little 
Calypso song written by John Deacon. He plays guitar in it, actually, too. And listen to that song in headphones and listen to just how Freddie goes full south of the border uh, on his vocals. Just incredible stuff. So there was variety in a lot of other music. The Beatles have their dark stuff, right? Uh, but they also have Maxwell's Silver Hammer, which is dark lyrics but fun, funky music, or Obladi Oblada, which is uh, goofy, goofy as heck, and they even get the lyrics wrong while recording it, but I got sick of it or whatever. Didn't record it again. But Led Zeppelin is like, you play it in a dark room and it opens a portal to hell. What can I tell you? Uh, them and ACDC, uh, it's just relentlessly a black music. It's uh, it's pentagram music, and uh, I've never been able to be that comfortable with it. Um, again, technical expertise is fantastic, but if there was ever a band where you'd say, oh yeah, they sold their soul to the devil for that fame, yes, that would be the band where you'd say, oh yeah, yeah, they, they totally did that. If YouTube said you could come back, would you say F off? On what, in what possibility would you would YouTube ever say I should I could come back? Um, no. Would I go back to YouTube? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I'm every every phase of what I do has its amazing charms. You know, there's something that Sting said once about the police, the band, the police. He said, you know, the best time was somewhere between the van. And the private jet. Because, you know, when you're in the your band and you're just roaming around in a van and things are falling apart and you're exhausted and you just you don't know if you're gonna make it. So somewhere between the van and the private jets was the best time. And, you know, I think that's kind of true, right? If you look at the trajectory of the police, very strong early albums, good albums all the way through, culminating in synchronicity, which with the exception of the Freudian Howler Monkey masterpiece known as Mother by Andy Summers, was a fantastic album all round. Um, Walking in Your Footsteps, uh, Oh My God, just amazing, fantastic music as a whole, and Sting's vocals were at their prime, in my opinion. Actually, no, Dream of the Blue Turtles, I think Sting's vocals were at their prime. But then, of course, they just they hated each other. I saw a speech with Andy Summers, sorry, with um, Stuart Copeland when I was in... Oh, gosh, I was in Hollywood entering a short film into the Hollywood Film Festival, and Stuart Copeland gave a speech. And, uh, yeah, he um, uh, he and Sting really had it in for each other. And, of course, the technical mastery of what they were doing, Andy Summers being an amazing guitarist, Stuart Copeland is like an absolute and complete, total, fiendish, spastic, epileptic metronome of infinite drummingness. Like, just incredible what he does. The hi-hat work he does is absolutely scintillating. It's like watching Northern Lights uh, fondle your... Nutsack. And the technical mastery there is incredible. And I'm sure for them, every phase, except for the last bit, like they tried to get in to do a, sequ- a, a sort of sequel album to Synchronicity, and all they could regurgitate was a sort of revamped version of Don't Stand So Close to Me, and then I think it all it all tanked. But it's um, every, every phase of what I do has its absolute delights. Uh, you know, the, the phase is starting out kind of stressful, kind of exciting. I knew my potential. How to manifest it was really challenging, and it really drew out the best in me in many ways. The The big sort of heydays of things where I strode the world like a colossus had its real um, uh, re- real excitement. I loved giving the speeches. Uh, I, I loved, you know, the numbers were great, and the the uh, donations were good. But, you know, you, you could feel, you could feel all of the lasers gathering, right? All the laser sites gathering, and, you know, the articles coming up, and the Wikipedia coming up, and them like, okay, we need to, we need to get the mob ready to take this guy down. 
And then when I was taken down, there's a real pleasure and a relaxation to this after party of us, you know, having these great conversations. And I've always got an eye to the future, right? I mean, uh, it's not like I have as big an audience now on these live streams as I did in the past, but that the challenge is to say, okay, what benefits can I get out of this? Well, more spontaneity, more engagement, more uh, liberty. There's a bit of a constriction when you're in such a public view. Uh, whereas I can be, you know, more jazz club. You can improvise more, and I think that has real value, both for you as listeners and for the future as a whole. So if YouTube said, would you come back? That would indicate a sea change in the culture, which would mean I wouldn't need to go back. So because that would mean that the culture was turning back more towards reason and evidence, in which case I wouldn't need to go back. So I know I, I can't imagine any situation either where A, they'd invite me, or B, <laughs> whether I would uh, whether I would go back. Uh I like the jazz clubs now. I do. I do. So, um, what is he here? Uh, Steph feels for philosophy. I feel for cake decorating. Decorating Puts a smile on my and others' face. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Do you think Jeff Bezos or Brett Weinstein is a similar social glue like Malcolm Gladwell? I, well, Jeff Bezos is, is a businessman, right? How would he be... Now, Brett Weinstein, has he written books? I, I'm sorry, I, I don't know. And it's only one T, I think, Brett Weinstein. Um, I think I had a couple of flybys with him on Twitter some years ago, but I don't know much about him. He is, I think, like a lot of people, he's like, oh, you got to be careful of this. You got to be careful of that. You got to be careful of the other. You, you don't want this to be misinterpreted. You don't want to go this way. You don't want to go that way. And it's like, yeah, I mean, I respect that to a large degree, but. Do you feel the same way about this sort of gathering storm of anti-white hatred being stoked by the communists among minorities? Because that seems pretty important, especially when they're no longer minorities and we turn into South Africa. So there's all of this caution, oh, you don't want to go there, you don't want to be innocent, you don't want your words to be taken the wrong way. It's like, if you guys could, you know, do that about the anti-white hatred stuff coming out these days, you'd have my respect, but it doesn't really seem to, to play that way as a whole. Uh, Brett Weinstein is pretty awesome. Don't agree with him politically. He is pretty on point with science. That is true. And, you know, he did take some real bullets for free speech, and that is to be uh, to be, to be, be credited. Exceptions do not exist. Explain this, Steph. <laughs> All right. See where Hunter Biden is selling his art to private collectors for millions. Oh, yeah, the donators are going to be anonymous for Hunter Biden's art, which is ridiculous, right? Yeah, it's an amazing, right? It's amazing. Amazing. Imagine imagine if a laptop of mine had been found with the stuff on Hunter Biden's laptop. Can you imagine? Again, it's all boring because it's all double standards and all that. So, All right. Let's see here. Hey, Steph, on the call in last week, you said no one has seen them all. So it gave me an idea. I'm going to start from the beginning. Currently, I'm 30 out of 5,000 shows. Oh, yeah. Good for you. Good for you. I appreciate that. Let me know what you think. Uh, let's see here. Baron is six seven. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, how to maintain intergenerational thriving? How are the Trumps and others like them positively different? Okay, so it could just be again. It may have nothing to do with parenting. It may have nothing to do with parenting. Although, without a doubt, America exchanged a reasonably good dad to an absolutely terrible dad. Like Trump is a reasonably good dad. Joe Biden is an absolutely a appalling and atrocious father. I mean, to have produced this level of dysfunction and addiction and abuse among his children, you know, for Joe Biden to say, well, Hunter Biden has struggled with his whole life. It's like, no, he didn't. He, he had an abused childhood. God knows what happened to that kid. God knows what happened to Hunter Biden as a kid that he ended up that 
addicted and that destructive and that abusive and oh my god i mean appalling appalling and so you know uh trump likes to protect his kids and he wanted to protect his family and biden obviously didn't protect his kids and wants to sell out his country and and now everyone's going to be everyone's going to know what it's like in america to be one of hunter biden's kids right so um so it could just be that Trump's, like the genetics in the Trump clan, just have everybody keeping at 140 or 150 or 160 IQ, right? The regression to the mean isn't an absolute, right? I mean, you you could have, like Trump Trump is above average in height, and as you say, Barron is six foot seven, and he's not even finished growing yet, right? So it could just be, you know, the, the tall basketball player is probably going to have a shorter son, but higher than the average, but he could have a taller son. So it could just be that they're one of the rare families where the IQ was just staying super high, Um over over time and all of that. So, <laughs> Baron Trump is going to be the best white basketball player since Larry Bird. Uh, Steph caught some of the Paris Hilton doc after you mentioned it. What did you think about it? Thanks. It's um, yeah, it's it's worth looking at. It's worth looking at. Um, when people are, she's she's very pretty. She's very glamorous and. She's got a little bit of a trashy side that sort of came out in the Simple Life stuff she did with Nicole Richie. But it is really important, I think. See, to be inspired is very important. I'm sorry, I'm just going to take a wee seat here. I did a, a long call in this afternoon with a fellow who turned out to be a anti-FDR troll in a way, but um, my legs are a little, a little tired from strolling around. Sorry. I'll just be, uh, let me know if I'm faffing up the mic too much. I'll try and stay off it so that it doesn't uh, pop too much. But uh, I lost my, my, uh, the guard. Um, what the hell is it called? The pop filter. I, I had words at one point. I really did. But um, so if you're inspired by someone, I think that's fantastic. But if you're envious of someone, that's paralyzing. So, you know, if you look at the Kardashians, you look at, um, Someone like Paris Hilton and so on. And yeah, they're wealthy, slender, beautiful, famous, talented. Uh, Paris Hilton is a DJ. I don't know how much talent you need to be a DJ, but apparently some. She sings a little. Um, and you look at people and you say, you know, that's, uh, oh, I envy that. Now, envy is when you admire something you cannot achieve, right? Otherwise, you're inspired. Like, I'm inspired to lose weight, Right. Uh, you know, sometimes I envy, you know, when I see people running around in their 20s and I'm like, yeah, that was fun. <laughs> that was a ball. That was great. And I always thought to myself, well, I'm going to keep working out, keep working out, and I'm not going to face any of those restrictions. I'm just going to stay healthy and stay. It's like, no, but then the working out makes you achy because you're. In, I'm going to be 55 this year, right? So get a little achy. So now I envy the people in their 20s because I can never be in my 20s again, right? Unless some <laughs> time machine thing it's able to vault us back or some regenerative thing is going to let us be healthy without getting cancer. So the, the, the good thing about the, the Paris Hilton documentary is for all of the people who look at somebody famous, rich, beautiful, talented, and so on, it lifts a lid, right? And it shows you, okay, what do you want for life? Do, do you want someone else's life? Now, if you want someone else's life and you can achieve it, that's aspirational. And I think that's a good thing, right? I mean, that's why, you know, I'd, 
you guys can be peaceful parents. You guys can have happy marriages. You know, the things that I have been able to achieve, I give you the tools and right, you can do it, right? Since it's not, I don't want you to envy me. I want you to aspire to reproduce uh, some of the values that I've been able to, to sort of create. So with the Paris Hilton thing, what's great about it is you say, do you want her life? Now, Paris Hilton was, her parents allowed her or paid for her to be kidnapped in the middle of the night, obviously, from her room and taken to a series of boarding schools where she was half starved and beaten and put in solitary confinement. She ran away and she escaped and she was dragged back. And, you know, now still, what is she, 40 now or something like that? She still wakes up with dreams of being kidnapped. She has complete PTSD, from what I can see, from this experience of her parents paying for her to be kidnapped, and I'm sure they didn't know she was being abused, but that's what happened in, in horrible ways, right? So you look at Paris Hilton's life, and she's like, oh, that's hot, you know? And she's like got that lazy resting bitch face superiority thing going on. Elizabeth Hurley had that down to a fine art. And you say, okay, so yeah, she is. She's famous, rich, beautiful, talented. Would I want her life? That's an important question, right? Would, would you say to people, would I want her life? Would I want his life? It's a big question. When I was growing up, Sting was the big guy, right? And, and Sting was like, yeah, I've got my problems. I've got my worries. One of Sting's accountants stole millions of dollars from him, and he had to take the guy to court, and it was a big mess and all that. But yeah, do what do I want? So you look at Paris and you say, okay, do I want her life? Would I want her life? And she travels all the time. She's got no regular life. She can barely sleep. She has insomnia, which I think has gone on for most of her adult life, which to me, like, it's horrible. It's the worst thing. It's the worst thing. And her relationships are appallingly terrible. Her romantic relationships are just wretched beyond words. Like, she's got a whole pile of MacBooks that was smashed by her boyfriend's because she was spending too much time on social media or she was they thought that she might get an email from another guy or something like and she's got this boyfriend she's just about to do this big gig this giant gig for DJing and he has some big horrible fight with her right before she goes out which is really appalling like save your conflicts until at least after she's done her massive DJing gig right so she's got no kids and she says very clearly, she said, okay, well, when I, first my, when, I fed, when I made my first $100 million, I thought, okay, well, I'll feel safe and I'll feel secure. I'll, I'll be okay. And now ah, i got to make a billion dollars in order to feel safe, to feel secure, to feel okay. And, of course, you know, if and when she gets to a billion dollars, she won't be happy. She won't feel safe. She won't feel secure. Because by saying that her safety and security relies on some outward metric, she's saying there's no way to deal with it internally. She's giving it way too much strength. She's saying, without the ally of a billion dollars, I can't defeat my trauma. But then, of course, you're just saying your trauma is huge. You know, you can only beat it with a billion dollars, but then you fed it with a billion dollars worth of you need allies to the point where you get to the billion dollars is even bigger and stronger. The only way you can defeat your trauma is to, to integrate it, to, to say that the trauma is there to, to, to keep me safe. And if I don't act in ways to keep me safe... I can't possibly expect my trauma to stop goosing me, right? Your trauma is supposed to goose you to keep you safe, right? But society is entirely engaged in keeping you in danger, so. 
So yeah, do you want do you want other people's lives? Well, the best cure for wanting other people's lives is to lift the lid on how they actually live and see what it's like from the inside. And there is almost nothing at all enviable about Paris Hilton's life and no hate. I mean, I wish her the best. I really do. It's like, you know, so there was a reboot of, gosh, let me get this woman's, let me get this girl's name. Oh, 90210. I never really watched it, but there was a show when I was younger called 90210. Reboot. So there was this 90210 reboot. Uh, and gosh, Beverly Hills. No, oh gosh, oh Beverly Hills 90210. Oh, there was a sequel. All right, all right, hang on, hang on. I'll find it. Was it a reboot? Re um, I'll find it. I used to bookmark these things. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, okay. Here we go. 90210. So they, there was an original one, and uh, um, the woman's name is Anna Lynn McCord. Anna Lynn McCord. I'll give you guys the, the link to this. Now, as a man, I'm sure women are aware of this too, it's certainly entirely possible to be a connoisseur of female beauty, right? And, and this woman is, like, shockingly beautiful, right? Now, it wasn't a Malrose place. I'll give you the link here, right? So you can look at this woman, and she, I remember seeing on the poster, and you know the poster is all kind of lip-glossed up and made up up and photoshopped and all that, but nonetheless, she was a staggeringly, uh, and still is, a staggeringly beautiful uh, woman, right? Great hair, great lips, great face, great eyes, and all of that. She's like a slightly wider Michelle Pfeiffer, right? So... Yeah, she had that um, go on. There was another TV star, another woman who was very beautiful. I can't remember her name. And she actually had been sexually abused from the age of 5 to 11 or 12 by uh, somebody in her family circle. And, um, yeah, uh, Madonna uh, was uh, raped by a black man. I think he forced her to perform oral sex on a balcony. Uh, and, you know, uh, gosh, who else... Um, uh, Jessica Simpson uh, also was sexually abused as a child. So, you know, do you want this kind of life? Do you want this kind of life? Do you want these people's lives? In other words, would you take their history in order to get what they have now? I wouldn't. I wouldn't take any of that stuff. I wouldn't. And it helps you not envy. Envy is paralyzing. Uh, aspiration is, is energizing. So, Yeah, she's beautiful, right? Yeah, 90210, the original, was such a craze. Could you do a podcast of the speech you would have done in Auckland, New, New Zealand? Oh, that's a good idea. And, uh, hang on. Wait. Oh, don't you hate it when you jump up and you fold the you fold the cushion in your butt. <laughs> you fold the cushion in your butt. 
yeah, you want your own, you want your own life, but you know, we don't have our own lives, right? You understand that we don't. I mean, what does it mean to have your own life? It doesn't mean anything because you you speak English, which has a certain syntax and language. You know, there's not really a word for secular in Arabic because it's a theological society. So, what if you've been born yourself, but in Morocco or something, be kind of different life? You have all of your ancestors and everything they gave to you, all the culture is inflicting upon you, all the propaganda the school inflicts upon you, and you say, ah, but I want my own life. It's like, eh, everything that we do is a dance with externalities, right? Um, how can my parents benefit from my addiction but always wanted me to do well? How do they benefit? P.S. Dad hit us weekly. And that's weekly as in every week, not weekly as in, <laughs> right? So... Your parents benefit from your addiction because if your parents, well, your dad hit you, right? So does your dad want you, I mean, this is why people get so mad at this conversation, right? Does your dad want you, <laughs> the, word in, the word for secular in Arabic is infidel, <laughs> it could be, does, you, does your dad want you to come up to him and say, you know, dad, I've, uh, I've been thinking about thinking about my childhood i've been thinking about like everything that went on oh man these these beatings this crazy man that that's that was not healthy that was not right that was not good and like it's really messed me up in in some ways really left a lot of scars on my brain and in my heart it's made me tough to trust people uh i get kind of jumpy i'm i'm hyper vigilant a lot of times you know like for 10 years you beat us every week that's uh 50 to a year that's like 520 beatings you know you get beat up 520 times you know you think you get beat up 520 times over 10 years as an adult it would kind of mess you up right and it's even worse for a kid so dad i what the hell like what the hell is going on like i need you to tell me what you were thinking what was the plan what was the goal like what do you think of it now because you know if i want to have kids and you still think it's great Parenting to hit kids, can't do it. I can't, I can't, I can't let you do that. I can't let you around my kids if you think that beating kids is good. Now, if you don't think that beating kids is good, then we've got to have another conversation about, you know, I, I don't think that strangling hobos is good, so I don't do it 520 times, right? So, I, uh, I need you to, you know, get comfortable. We can have a long conversation about the physical violence you inflicted upon me as a child. Right, does your dad want you to have that, to open up a conversation with him? God, no. Absolutely, completely, and totally not does he want to be within a million miles of that conversation. But the only reason you'll have that conversation is because you'll stop self-medicating. So he needs you to keep self-medicating so you won't get, you won't experience your pain enough to have a conversation about moral responsibility and self-ownership, right? Let's see here. Um, when I tried doing that through a letter, my dad didn't want to even read it. Can't saying it'll put his health at risk. Oh, he can't. He, it says he'll put his health at risk. Okay, so he'd rather have your health at risk than his, right? And uh, I'm sorry about that. I really am. I mean, the idea of sacrifice from parents went out with the boomers, right? Went out with the boomers. How about just hobo strangling once in a while only? Uh, Got to give you a yeah, no. Um, it is, uh, 
universally preferable behavior, no asterisks, no exceptions. Yeah, the Arabs discovered secularism a long time before Europe. Yes, well, I mean, the problem is, of course, cons consanguinity, right? So the problem is cousin marriage. Cousin marriage shaves 12 to 10 to 12 IQ points off the population, right? So when you get a cousin marriage society, you get much more R selection, you get uh, greater increases in aggression, right? Because the sweet spot for criminality is 85 IQ, unfortunately. So when you get a, um, you think of this with the Crusades, right? So you have a no cousin marriage society, which was the European Christian society. You have a cousin marriage society, which was the Islamic society. And uh, it's a problem. It's a big, big problem. So, And I'm sorry for the people who uh, keep, qu uh, and you're entirely right to do so, and I'm entirely wrong, but nonetheless, I will tell you that I'm very sorry for the people who are saying, Steph, I did a call-in show with you and it hasn't been released. Where is it? Um, well, it might have been released. It might have been released on freedomain.locals.com. You can um, get uh, lots of advanced shows there. I will get them all out, but I'm sort of cognizant of not wanting to release like four hours of FDR material in one day. So it will get out, but I'm sorry about that. Why hasn't cultural Marxism affected the Islamic world? Because the Marxists aren't in charge of their media. I look at who runs the media and it's all pretty clear. A half of Pakistani women in the UK are in cousin marriages. Yeah, and, and, and of course the Pakistani culture in the UK is responsible for vastly disproportionate amounts of, of infant uh, genetic deformities, right? Yeah, much higher birth defect rate from incest, yeah. It's over half, right? Over half of Pakistani women. Yeah, big, big birth defects. Like in many places in the UK, virtually all of the children uh, being dealt with for the rest of their lives because of birth defects come out of the... Uh, uh, come out of the uh, Pakistani community. Yeah, it's really, it's really sad. Can you tell the story of the first person who reached out to tell you that Free Domain helped them? I don't know that I could. We used to have these, so back in the day, Skype used to have this whole gathering area that, that is not available anymore, hasn't been for a long time. But um, it probably would be an early email, but uh, I don't keep emails, so I couldn't really, uh, I couldn't really tell you. Sorry, <laughs> I'm afraid that's just a little too long ago. I remember for FDR 500, uh, no, FDR 1000, a whole bunch of people recorded how much FDR meant to them. I'm not sure if that ever went out. I don't think it did, but I probably got it somewhere. Maybe. Uh, have you read The Most Dangerous Superstition? Probably the best book I've read outside of you. That's Larkin Rose, right? I started it. I did not get very far in it, I'm afraid. I look for literary flourish and poetry a little bit in my writing, uh, and uh, he's a bit of a plotter, uh, as far as I know, but I will give it another try if you if you like it. Well, I'm sorry, I'm here to announce that we will not get to the core topic, but only because you guys are way too interesting, way too interesting. So uh, you always finish your shows by saying, "Will you keep in contact?" Oh yeah, no, I do get I do get people who email me and tell me how they're doing, and some people want more shows. I don't usually grant that though, because I'm not a therapist. I don't sort of do repeat work. Larkin Rose went to prison for not paying taxes, I think. Yes, I actually talked to him once about that. Uh, we were uh, at the same conference, and we were sharing a cab, and he, he told me the story. It's, it's a very sad story, and I'm sorry if I got it wrong. It was about 10 years ago, but his story was that he felt that 
he was not going to be legally compelled to pay taxes. There's a lot of people who think there's a loophole in the U.S. tax system or the U.S. laws that means you don't have to pay taxes. And he prepared a big uh, speech and a statement and a proof about why he shouldn't have to pay taxes. He was never allowed to speak. They just sentenced him to, what, 14 months in prison or something like that. And yeah, he had uh, his kids and a family and all of that. So anyway, I hope he got into Bitcoin because I know he was kind of broke way back in the day. He would put out messages like, help me with gas money and all of that. So I hope he got into Bitcoin and made some, made some money. But uh, it's sovereign citizens. It's something like that, right? And yeah, so you might, you, listen, you might get away, quote, get away in the U.S., with not paying taxes for a year or two or maybe even three. But I think what they're doing is they're looking for a pattern of behavior. Like it wasn't just a mistake or a one-off or you forgot to file or you were out of the country. If they find a pattern of behavior of you not paying taxes, that they can, they can come after you much harder. And look, I mean, Biden is massively, massively increasing the funding for the IRS. I mean, they're going to go after people. So, yeah. Uh, Wesley Snipes syndrome. Yeah, didn't also Lauren Hill... Oh, man, she does a, a really beautiful version of Change Gonna Come by Sam Cooke. Yeah, she's really good, a really good singer. But yeah, she also got in trouble for taxes, I think. Uh, somebody says, I have very few friends. Should I keep doing my thing or force myself to meet new people or something else? So when people say very few true friends, does that mean zero? I mean, does that mean one? I'm not sure. I'm not sure what you mean. <laughs> I'm waiting. <laughs> No, I'll, I hate the I'll wait guys, you know, the I'll wait guys on the internet. <laughs> I'll wait. It's like, oh, you petty, 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 annoying, small-minded, tiny-dicked people. Oh, my God. I'll wait. It's like the people, what is that, put something out recently and people still bring up this $1 thing. Like people think, there's this weird myth, there's two weird myths, well, a bunch of weird myths, but two of them. One is that I, you may see this if you ever around people who don't like me who talk about me. There's this rumor, it's a completely ridiculous rumor, that I posed as a teenage girl to <laughs> to um, to comment on my own The Truth About Frozen video. And uh, of course, it's not true, right? So what they thought, they thought that because it came up under my name, they thought that I had forgotten to switch accounts or something like that, and I was posting on my own video how wonderful it was and so on. <laughs> and it's not true. What happened was there was a mechanism called Google+, Plus that was tied into YouTube. And so if you would comment on Google+, Plus, it would come up under YouTube. And I retweeted her comment under Google+, Plus, then it came up under my name in YouTube. And you can still scroll down. And well, I guess you could back when it was still on, on the internet. <laughs> but people, this, this went on for years. And people, oh yeah, aren't you the guy who pretended to be a teenage girl to comment on his own video? It's like, no, I never did that. I've never, ever sock puppeted commented on my own <laughs> work. How sad would that be? I had a million followers. On YouTube, I had a half a million on Twitter. Why on earth would one more make any difference? <laughs> I guess it just doesn't make any sense. So that's number one. Uh, number two is there's this weird rumor that I berated a guy for only giving me a dollar. Like I shamed and humiliated a guy who only donated a dollar. Not true. <laughs> Again, it's not, it's not me. Come on, that's not me. So I, um, what happened was somebody sent me $2.00. And I posted a picture of the $2 donation, no name, of course. I posted a picture of the $2 donation, and I said, I don't mean to sound ungrateful, but, right, that's all. Because somebody sends me two bucks, 
Come on. You know, that's a little bit of an insult. It's like when I was a waiter, there'd be a $100 meal and somebody would leave me a $1.50, which means they knew that they're supposed to tip, but they're just kind of sticking it to you like it's a really passive-aggressive thing to do. Because if somebody genuinely can't afford more than $2, don't, like, seriously, if ever you're down to your last $2, do not send them to me. Use it to get bus fare to get to a job. Use it to buy food, whatever, right? I don't know. Use it to phone someone to get a job. Don't send me your last $2. If, if you're really that broke, for God's sakes, don't send me the money. So, uh, you know, I don't like that. I don't like the idea that somebody's, that's, I only have $2 to my name, but I'm going to send it to you. No, 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 no. I'll send it back, right? Or, or if they have more, but they're saying, well, your show is only worth 2 bucks. Because, you know, I've said, look, if, if you like my show, you know, I said 50 cents a show is pretty reasonable, right? I mean, you spend 12 bucks to go see a two-hour movie, and I do a show 50 cents, right? Um, but if somebody sent me 50 cents every show, <laughs> be like, don't do that. Come on, don't do that. I got to pay fee. I had to pay PayPal fees on that, which, you know, the lower the money, the higher the PayPal fees. So just, you know, save up and send me 20 bucks when you've listened to 40 shows or 50 bucks if you've listened to 100 shows. Like, that's a reasonable thing to do, right? So when somebody would send me just a tiny amount of money, it just kind of passive aggressive, right? I mean, it's I've got to track it. I've got to pay a lot of fees on it. I've got to report it. Like, it's just it's just gumming up the works, right? And uh, what did I get? Like a buck 30 out of the two bucks? Uh, something like, I can't remember what it was, but it was some crazy high fee, right? Which, I, again, I still got to track and report and, and pay taxes on. And, and it's just a hassle, right? So, yeah, I think there was every reason to say, I don't really, uh, I really like that, right? Uh, I heard someone, so yeah, these are just nonsense things that people say. I heard someone pushing your cult leader myth on Stix's live show the other day. He said that he was convinced to go live in safe houses? Wait, not Stix. Oh, the guy who called in <laughs> to go live in safe houses? That is his story. Oh, my gosh. He had to go live in safe houses because I have a podcast? Does he think I have an army of, of podcast demons that follows people around? And and what? I run a podcast. I give advice. I give thoughts. I give philosophy feedback on the internet. Uh, I write some books. And what, he had to go to a safe house because I run a podcast? Um, I actually feel a great deal of sympathy for that. I really do. Because that's somebody, I think, in my personal opinion, uh, that's somebody who's obviously, they either believe that, like they believe that they were on the run from a podcaster who barely leaves his house i mean come on i mean he was on the run for me like what because i was podcasting he's on the run i'm chasing him people are ch like that's really he either genuinely believes that in which case boy that's that's a pretty terrifying state of mind to be in to think that you're being followed because somebody does a podcast somewhere uh that's really terrifying and and i grew up with a woman who was paranoid my mom's paranoid it's a terrible 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 state of mind to be in like you're always jumpy you're always scared so the idea that so he, he yeah I like six too but so the 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 idea that that he genuinely believed that he was being chased or followed and had to jump from safe house to hey, safe house to safe house because I do a philosophy podcast I mean that's a terrifying state of mind to be in and I do really sympathize with that that's the kind of thing where you probably need a whole team to help you out of that mindset like is the podcaster in the room with us at the moment you know that kind of thing right. Or he doesn't believe that, but he's just saying that to, what, hurt my reputation or something like that. And that's, you know, that's just really sad. That's, it's not an argument. It's really sad. All right. Let's see here. He said that you convinced him to defoo and that you operated some network of safe houses? I operated a network of safe houses? Oh, my God. Wow. The things people believe. 
Oh, well, they believe communism. What can I say, right? Yeah, none of that, of course. It's remotely true. Um, and it's, it's very sad. Well, you do look like a supervillain with an army of demons. That's pretty funny. All right. Um, Steph got a $2 widow's mite. The guy wanted Steph to be Jesus and say, I tell you, this man gave more than all the others. It was all he had. I uh, know. Let's see here. You've said you won't help people who don't have passion. How do I get passion? My hormones are good. I've really, I've said I won't help people who don't have passion. Are you kidding me? Sometimes it feels like half the people who call in need some fundamental voltage boost to their spine. So I don't know. I, I, it's always kind of confused because I've done so many shows, right? It's been so long. And so when people say, well, you said this. You said that video games can't ever be art. It's like, I don't, don't think I did. <laughs> I don't think I've ever. I won't help people who don't have passion. Have you listened to my college shows? Again, a lot of them are like, yeah, I'm okay in my life, but I just don't really know what I'm right. So no, I don't think, I don't think, I just don't think that's true. I liked your show on Easter when I had some breakthrough as a result of your show. The story of Jesus finally made sense. Oh, that's great. I'm glad to hear that. I could only hope to be doing good enough work where people make up such crazy things about me in an attempt to discredit me. The other thing, true, of course, is that this could be that like, whoever called into sticks, I have no idea, right? It could be, it could be that it's some parent whose child, adult child escaped an abusive relationship who just wants to discredit and is just making up stuff, right? And who knows? Who knows? Steph equals Lex Luthor. Oh, come on. Toss in a Mussolini or two. We're both bald. I shave my head and stand on an Italian balcony, and you just don't even know what could go down. The Easter show was wonderful. Yes, I am uh, going to do Genesis, I think, next. Not the band, because that's too close to uh, American Psycho, but I think I'll do uh, Genesis, the... So I read Bible cover to cover when I worked up north because I didn't have anything to do at night. And so I did brought up a copy of the Bible, read it like cover to cover. And uh, yeah, I think Genesis would be a good thing to talk about. It's a very fascinating, fascinating story. Yeah, I think it would be I think it would be very cool. The kind of thing where I do it like a live stream as well, getting all the research and do the live stream. So all right. Any last uh, any last questions or comments? Sorry we didn't get to the topic. Not really that sorry, because again, you guys are just far too fascinating, far too interesting. Yeah, I, I told you Elon was just uh, dissing Bitcoin to buy the dip, right? He's back in, right? Uh, Steph, you'd think alternative media needs a function to silence trolls, or is that against freedom of speech? Yeah, no, for sure. BitChute, I mean, there's a bunch of trolls on BitChute I'd like to not um, have on my channel. I, I think you should be able to mute people on your channel, for sure, yeah. It would be like a reading of almost. <laughs> yeah, it would. Yeah, it would. Any predictions on vaccine side effects? You know, I'm no scientist. So, you look, we'll know a year from now, maybe two years from now, we'll know. Although some people are saying the fertility issues might not show up until the next generation. So, but at some point, either the the negative side effects will be clear or there won't be really many negative side effects, in which case you, everybody can make their own decisions. But I just need more data. I just need more data. Good shows. If I paid 50 cents for every show I watched, I would go broke. Well, I would say that if you listen to my shows well enough, you'd be able to afford 50 cents for every show. I always look forward to Wednesday nights. Thanks, Steph. Well, thank you. Hey, Deanne, I really, really appreciate that. I really, really appreciate that. How long did it take you to read the Bible? It took me years. It was the hardest book I ever read. Uh, I was a solid four months on that, but then remember, I had three or four hours a night, so... 
I remember lying in a tent in literally the middle of nowhere. I just grabbed a bunch of tapes uh, from friends and all of that before I went up. And I remember listening to a tape on, on headphones in my, I had these absolutely giant sleeping bags because it get to minus 40 outside, right? And we were in these tents, like they're called prospectors tents. They're like canvas huts. And we had to actually mix, mix jet fuel in with our gasoline just to heat it warm enough. And by the, by the morning, the entire um, heating stove was like glowing red, if you could even see it from the outside. And, and there was still snow on the floor. It was incredible. I, I tell you this, man, you've never felt so clean as when you've taken a shower when it's minus 40 out because you are absolutely freezing your nads off and you are washing yourself and the water is turning to sheets of ice on your body, like literally on your body, the ice is falling off in sheets and then you get back into your clothing and it's like you feel electric clean. You're like it's just an incredible thing, but uh, I never want to do it again. <laughs> never want to do it again. Um, yeah, what was I talking about up north for? Oh yeah, I was working up north Still tiny shreds of my life that would come and go. But I remember, have you ever heard the Paul Young version? It's a cover song of uh, Wherever I Lay My Hat, That's My Home. You ever, ever heard that? Hit me with a Y if you've heard. It's an amazing bass intro. Boom, 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 boom. He's, and Paul Young, in his prime, he's kind of wrecked his voice. So he was like a year he couldn't sing because he wrecked his voice. But in his prime, a great throaty, bluesy voice. You ever heard uh, Paul Young's Every, Wherever I Lay My Hat, That's My Home? Fantastic song. Fantastic song. And uh, I remember thinking, oh, wow, if I could write something like that, I'd die, die a happy man. That kind of song. Uh, just amazing. You, yeah, you've heard it? Some of you have heard it. Some of you not. Yeah, go, go check it out, man. He is, he is the bomb. Sounds like Hakuna Matata. Pennsylvania. <laughs> no, it's really, really great. By the look in your eye, I can tell you're going to cry. Is it over me? I keep working on getting you your 5,000 times 50 cents, but you keep making more. <laughs> Not that I feel obligated, just grateful. I uh, appreciate that. Thank you. Canadian John Galt, thank you for all you do. I appreciate that. Thank you guys as well. Yeah, so my song recommendation, go listen to Wherever I Lay My Hat by Paul Young. Just fantastic. All right. Lots of love from up here. Uh, movie night with live commentary. Would you guys do uh, Mel Gibson's Hamlet, which is my favorite Hamlet? Uh, would you guys do Mel Gibson? Hit me with a Y if you would do... Um, we'd watch it uh, and uh, we'd chat about it afterwards. I might even pause it in the middle, but... Do you look forward to the crash? No. But uh, I didn't look forward to chemo either, but it was necessary. Yeah, you do it? Okay, let's, let's, uh, you got, uh, we'll aim for it this weekend. So go to freedomain.com forward slash newsletter, sign up for the newsletter, and I'll put something out. Yeah, we'll, we'll do it. Uh, Mel Gibson's Hamlet is a staggeringly fantastic work of art with a few limitations, in my humble opinion. I was actually going to uh, direct a friend of mine in Hamlet in Montreal. We had this beautiful big church booked and all that, but uh, he ended up uh, having to back out. Yeah, Mel, Mel Gibson's an incredible actor. Uh, so, yes, if you monologue. No, come on. I didn't, I didn't like um, the Ethan Hawke one. I didn't particularly like the Kenneth Branagh one. But I thought that the Mel Gibson one was just about fantastic. Uh, about, as good, about as good as it's going to get. I still, I honestly completely and totally, I never read Hamlet until I was in theater school. And I completely and totally remember staying up all night to read that play. Just like goosebumps the whole night. What an incredible piece of text. Oh, my God. Fantastic. 
Everybody who's an actor is sad when they've gotten too old to play Hamlet. Even though he was like seven years younger than the woman who played his mother. Oh, gosh. It's that crazy woman from Damage. Anyway. All right. Shakespeare. Yeah, we'll, we'll do that. Brah, some white-tailed deer just walked up to my home. Man, that's some privileged tail. Male is based, <laughs> you know, some would say. What's that great line from, from Ricky Gervais? Uh, I, like, I like a drink as much as the next man, unless the next man is Mel Gibson. Apocalypto, is that good? Pretty violent, though, right? I've never, I got a little bit uh, tired of the violent movies, so. I enjoyed your roundtable series. Can you have one on dating in today's marketplace? Hmm. That's very interesting. Two shows today. I did two shows today, but one wasn't broadcast. Well, I guess I did three because I did, uh, uh, my daughter wanted to play some Among Us, so we opened it up to the live stream where we played some Among Us, which was fun. And then I did a two, almost a two and a half hour call in with a guy. Oh, man. Oh, what a mess. What a mess. And um, yeah, not tonight. That's all right. That's all right. It's great fun. All right. So have yourselves a great evening, uh, freedomain.com forward slash donate to help out the show. I would really, really appreciate that. Don't forget my free book, freedomain.com forward slash almost. Yeah, just try it. Just try it. It's gorgeous beyond words. You will absolutely love it. And if for some reason, for some reason, if for some reason you don't like it, well, you just have to up your taste. That's all I'm saying. All I'm saying. All right. Thanks, everyone. Lots of love from up here. Have a great, great evening. Sorry we didn't get to the call-in part or the title, but... It was a great show, I think, all the better for it. So look at that. It came in just under two hours. Lots of love. Take care. Bye.